we've been in the book of Colossians, and um, what I want to do is, while you're move, turning to Luke 2, I want to um, read for you Colossians 1, 13 through 14. And I would like for it to act as a, an opportunity for our hearts to get into the posture of looking at this passage from Luke 2. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, He, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Colossians tells us that God, in his great mercy, delivered us from darkness, and he transferred us into his Son's kingdom. And um, the reason why I want to bring this up is because Luke 2 and the Christmas story have everything to do with God's delivery of us from darkness. God intended to save his people, and this is the reason why Christmas exists. And so, as we read Luke uh, 1 through, uh, Luca 2, 1 through 20, I want that to be where your heart is sort of focusing on. Um, the kids read actually through it, so I'm going to go through it again. And my prayer is that you would listen very closely and um, do everything you can to pick up something new. I want this to hit us fresh because we've heard this story over and over again. Um, just pay attention to the details and then we'll go through it. So Luke 2 verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you <coughs> is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told, him, told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are completely worthy of our affection and our adoration 
Um, not only because you created all things and you sustain them moment by moment, not only because we were made for you, um, but Father, also because you in your great mercy sent your Son to pierce the darkness of this world and bring hope and life and joy and peace. And that's why we're here today. We're here to celebrate that reality. And so I pray that as we read this story, we would read it with fresh eyes and that by your grace we would see your beauty, your glory in this passage. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So here's how I want to look at this story. I want to take the angel's song, this little statement of praise that is made, and I want to use it as a, a means to leverage some new things out of this text. They might be old to you, but I'm, I'm hoping that they are new and they're relevant for us. Um, there are three aspects to this song that I want to look at. The first is this. They say, glory to God in the highest. So I want to take a look at that. What does it mean in this story for glory to be given to God in the highest? The second is this aspect of those whom he's pleased with. Those whom he's pleased with. And the third is peace. This good news of great joy. And I want to spend our time looking through those three lenses at this story. So let's start at the beginning. Glory to God in the highest. This multitude of angels is praising God by giving him glory for what's happening, and they're inviting the shepherds to do this. And we see this in verse 20 because they specifically, the shepherds, go back and they return to their fields glorifying and praising God. So my first question is, how do the angels describe this God that they are glorifying? In the song, they use one word, highest. Glory to God in the highest. What does that mean? What are they trying to communicate there? And I think it doesn't take a lot of thought to recognize that at the core, what they are saying is that God is the highest, the greatest, and the most ultimate and awesome reality that exists. They're saying that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, above this God that they see. He is in the highest, and his supremacy and his greatness is unparalleled. He has no rival. And Luke, as he tells us this story, doesn't really beat around the bush. For example, look at the situation that brings Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem. It's a decree from the emperor Caesar Augustus, who is effectively the king of the known world. This registration or census, um, he issues on his own. This is his own volition. He issues it as his own plan. <laughs> but he doesn't realize that this registration that he's issuing is actually, his, is actually not his plan alone. It is God's plan from the very beginning. Micah 5, 2 says that the Messiah, the Christ, the one that is to come and rescue the people of Israel, is going to come from Bethlehem. So, this decree from Caesar is only an offshoot of the decree from God, that Scripture should be fulfilled. It shows, in this small section of the story, that God is more powerful and governs all things than the person who's actually enthroned, enthroned uh, on the earth. This worldwide census is a massive undertaking. It's across the entire known world. People are moving to go to their hometowns, to the place of their lineage. Because Caesar wants to know how many people are underneath him. 
But ultimately, it's because God is keeping a promise to his people. Caesar's not calling the shots in this story. God is. The second way we see God's greatness in the angel's message is is in the way that the angels appear. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. And it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is very important. God's angel appears, and it's not the angel's glory that they see. It's God's glory. And the shepherd's response to this, I think, personally, makes sense. It says that they see the angel and they are filled with great fear. These dudes in the field see the glory of God shining around them and they become scared out of their minds Um, because this glory isn't coming from a created being. It's coming from the uncreated God. And so why is it so fearful? Why should it be so fearful for us to see the glory. Why would, he, why would Luke, when he's telling us this story, make that disparity between what they would expect on a calm, silent night in Bethlehem and what they're seeing here? Here's why. The God whose glory is shining brightly through this angel is without equal, without rival, without limitation, without weakness. He is infinite and eternal. He is qualitatively perfect, morally perfect, and his glory, when it shines out, his radiance displays and communicates that. He created all things, and he sustains them moment by moment, and he is the one for whom all things exist. So when the angels say glory to God in the highest, they mean that, and that frightening glory is here to communicate his infinite greatness. And I really feel like we can domesticate this story. Um, Nativities do a, a really good job of communicating the human nature of it, but we can try to domesticate it because this reality doesn't hit us the way it should. The greatness of God. And so I think we need to feel that to understand this story. The next part of the angel's song that I want to focus on is like I said, who it's directed to. The angels say, on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. So the song shifts from God, and it goes to human beings. It shifts from the highest realm of existence, something infinitely high, to us on earth. Verse 11 says that it's good news That will be for all the people. But this song says something interestingly specific. It says, For those whom God is pleased, whomever the news is ultimately for, one thing is very clear that God is expressing some profound particularity in how he's communicating this message, who he selects to show this message. He's focusing on very specific kinds of people. So take Joseph and Mary, for example, <clears throat> these are the parents of the child. They are not from the great city, Jerusalem. They are not from the city of Bethlehem, clearly. They have to make their way there. They are from the town of Nazareth. Most historians believe Nazareth was extraordinarily small, 400 to 1,000 people, maybe at most. And we have very little information 
But what we can draw from other parts of Scripture, in John 1, for example, Nathanael says, when he hears that the Messiah may have come from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? He is shocked and aghast by the suggestion that anything beneficial could come from this small town. This is where Joseph and Mary live. It is in the outskirts of culture. It is on the fringes of humanity, and it is in the middle of practically nowhere. And despite Joseph's relationship to David, he's of the lineage of David, which the the story says, and despite Mary's impending delivery, she's about to give birth, when they arrive at Bethlehem, they are turned away. When they arrive at Bethlehem, they're told there's no room. And in fact, even as people survey their situation, Joseph's lineage and Mary's pregnancy, no one makes room. So we have to ask the question, are all those who have room right now, do they possess greater rights than Joseph in Bethlehem? Or do they have more urgency around their situation than a young lady who's about to give birth to a baby? For whatever reason, in this story, Luke says they are shut out. They are not given any room. And therefore, they are pushed out into a place that's exposed to the elements. And we get clearly a picture of this peasant family being formed here through the birth of Jesus that aren't being allowed any place to hang out, to spend time while this, this event is happening. Um, and then we consider the shepherds. Of all the people that God could have come to and sent this message to, he goes to shepherds. Shepherds, these shepherds are in the outskirts of Bethlehem in the middle of the night. They aren't kings. They aren't rulers. They aren't religious leaders. They are of no consequence effectively. They are simple shepherds. There is absolutely nothing remarkable about these people. They are clearly not of the highest social status. They are of the lowest of that time. They are not educated men. They are animal keepers. These are not wealthy people who just happen to be reclining in the evening. They are taking care of the sheep in the middle of the dead of night, which means certainly they have nothing to give to Jesus. They have nothing they can give him. Of all the people in the world, God chooses to send the message to them. And a poor peasant couple from Nazareth are chosen to be the parents. So what is God doing here? What is he up to? Before we answer that, I want to look at the third aspect of this song. The third part of this song I want to look at is this word that they mention, peace. Now, what is this peace? Now, it must be connected to verse 10 above, because in verse 10 we see the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This joy that the good news is beckoning, and this peace must be the same thing, or connected very deeply. So what is the good news? Well, according to the angels, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's the good news. This is the message that God desired for the shepherds to have. So what does it mean? What is, what is the angel saying? He says, a Savior is born today. There is a Savior, a Deliverer, a Rescuer, and He's come to save 
people, God's people. But he's more than that. He's more than just a savior. There's been other saviors in the past. He's more than a savior. The angel says that he's the Christ. He is the Christ, and the Christ is the Messiah. It's the Greek way of saying Messiah, the Savior that was promised to the people of Israel, the promised king who will reign, according to Scripture, forever. He is the light that pierces the darkness of night, and he brings peace and joy. But this Christ, this Savior, isn't just a man, not just a normal man. He's more than that. The angel calls him Christ the Lord. Now, in this story, only one other person is called the Lord. That word in Greek is kyrios. Only one other person is called the Lord in this story. Who is it? It's God. God is called the Lord. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Why call this Christ Lord too? Doesn't that, Luke, confuse things? Doesn't that create some confusion around who should be Lord? And the reason it doesn't in this story is because the angel has to call him Lord because he isn't just a man, he is the son of the living God. This is God entering into human existence by taking on human flesh. Christ the Lord. But the angel continues. He doesn't stop there. He says, This will be a sign for you. A sign. Now, what does he mean? How is what he's about to say a sign? Well, it's certainly a sign for the shepherds to find the child later on, right? It's a directional sign. It's geographical. They'll know, okay, this is the baby we're looking for. But the question I want to ask here today is this. Is it more than that? Is it more than simply a physical, directional sign for the shepherds to follow? Is this a sign for us and for the people Luke knows will read this text later on? (laughs) What he says here is this. You will find, this is the sign, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. This is strange because the angel just got done saying that he is Christ the Lord. And then they proceeded to say, glory to God in the highest. And yet here, he's saying, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for a baby. And get this, the baby's going to be in a manger. So it's a week. I want you to try to conceive of this in your minds. Christ the Lord, a weak, frail, so small child that it must be swaddled because it has been in its mother's womb, in his mother's womb for nine months. And because of the things we described earlier about Joseph and Mary, there's no room for them in the end, and therefore they are with animals and using a manger for a crib. What is a manger? What's going on here? Why why a manger? Why do that? A manger is a feeding trough for animals. It isn't a stall. It isn't bedding. It is a place that the animals eat from. It's where their food is. Why 
and this is the question that I believe Luke wants us to ask when we read this, why is Christ the Lord being born in a trough? What would, if you're a shepherd there, and you're hearing this, what would you be thinking? You just said glory to God in the highest. The apex of all existence, the zenith of all reality, that's where this God is. And you're saying that he's born as a baby in a feeding trough? This shall be a sign, the angel says. So what is the sign? What is the purpose of this disparity between the highest and between what is effectively the lowest possible way that this baby could be born? The angels are trying to communicate a few things. God is the highest reality in the universe, but he's come to earth not to a royal family, but to a pair of peasants from Nazareth. He's come to earth not heralded to king's messengers and envoys, but to a bunch of shepherds in the middle of a field. He's come to earth not placed on a throne to rule and reign immediately, but he's in a feeding trough that was probably just used by animals a few minutes earlier. What is going on here? What, what, what is the sign that we are being asked to see with the shepherds? Here's what I see in the sign. First, the angel is acknowledging a reality. He is acknowledging the reality that the distance between God and the distance between us and him is great. Very great. He's not downplaying the distance here. He wants that to be very clear. God is infinitely valuable and humanity does not deserve the infinitely valuable. God is priceless and matchless. He is without equal and we are, as these people in the story display, very common, very poor. We lack in all the ways that God does not. God is the highest, and we are mere humans. The distance between God and us is real. The angel wants us to get that and to feel that. It is massive. It is infinite. Yet, despite the distance, something is happening on this night. Something incredible. The angel says it is good news of great joy. What is this good news? And it's this. Very simply, despite the massive infinite distance between God and the highest and between a feeding trough in the middle of downtown Bethlehem, God is going to cross it. He's going to cross this massive chasm and he's going to come and dwell with us. But that doesn't come without a cost. There is a cost to the peace in this message. There is a cost to the joy. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 helps us understand this cost. It says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So consider with me the first day of his life. 
the Son of the living God was placed in a manger. This is a wooden piece of furniture used for one of the most unclean things imaginable, the feeding of livestock. We went to a petting uh, zoo recently, or a few months ago. How much sanitizing liquid is there? Like, they got gallons and gallons and gallons of liquid there. Just an indicator to how gross it is to be touching animals that are animals. Um, The baby is lying on his back in this feeding trough. And he's looking up at his parents in the darkness of night. He is completely vulnerable. He is completely fragile. God the Son, a human baby. This is how he begins his existence as a human being. Lying on a piece of wood somewhere in a crowded town in the Middle East. Philippians describes this as he emptied himself. God in the highest empties himself and comes down to a feeding trough. He becomes the lowest. But that's not the only cost. That's not the only cost. Listen to the rest of the passage in Philippians. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I want you to consider the last day of his life. The Son of the Living God was laid onto and nailed onto a cross. This was also a wooden piece of furniture. It was a wooden torture device used for one of the most dishonorable things imaginable, the humiliation and execution of a convicted criminal under the Roman government. The man, Christ the Lord, lied on his back on this piece of wood, looking up at his Roman executors, in the darkness of day. He was completely innocent and without sin. Yet, he was punished for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sakes, he who knew no sin became sin, so that we would, we might become the righteousness of God. This will be a sign, the angel said. The cost of crossing that infinite chasm. So what is the distance between the eternal, sovereign, omnipotent God in a feeding trough being used by a peasant family as giftless shepherds approach? What is the distance that's being described there? It is incalculable. It is immeasurable. It is infinite, and Paul is doing the best he can with human language by saying, he emptied himself. That's as good as I can do to describe what happened on that day when he came and became a man. That was what the cost was for God to cross that distance and be to us. Yet, praise be to God, he did cross it. You want to know what Christmas means? You want to know what this season means? If you want to know what the incarnation, God becoming man, means, it is about God crossing an infinite chasm to bring us joy and peace. But the question we should ask is, what is he saying when they say joy and peace? What kind of joy and peace are we looking for here? What is the sign ultimately pointing to? This great joy 
is an ever-increasing, ever-intensifying delight in the one who saved us, and the one who redeemed us, and the one who came for us. This great joy and this peace is being with him. And it is the greatest gift possible, and the greatest gift imaginable, because in us knowing him, in us treasuring him, we get what we were made for. We get what we were designed to enjoy and embrace. A gift that we do not deserve. So my prayer for us this holiday season, I'm going to pray in a second here, we'll sing some more songs, is that as we take communion, as we recognize the realities that we're looking at here and that we're going to be celebrating tomorrow, that we would take great note of the infinite distance that was crossed when the eternal God, God in the highest, became a human being. And he did that for us so that his glory would be embraced and received by us as the treasure that it is. And so let's pray real quick and then we're going to sing a few more songs. In the name of of God, I pray that you would, by your great power, Father, that you would kindle in our hearts an appreciation and an enjoyment for your beauty for your glory, for the treasure that you really are. You are the uncreated God. Everything that we enjoy in this world is a derivative of your goodness. How could it be any other way? And therefore, our highest affections, Father, our greatest longings, our greatest joy is only found in you ultimately. Everything else in this world, as good as it is and as enjoyable as it is, points to the greatest and highest joy. And that joy would not be ours if you had not delivered us from darkness by humbling yourself and emptying of yourself and taking the form of a servant and being born in a feeding trough to show how far you're willing to go to show us your love, to show us your grace. So I pray that we would see that, that we would savor and enjoy that reality this holiday season, Father, and that we would recognize not only that Jesus Christ is the reason for the season, but that Jesus Christ is the reason, period, and that we would delight in him as such. We give you all honor and praise, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.